Our text this morning, if you'd like to turn to your Bible, is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, starting in verse 1. The section is titled, Jesus Rejected at Nazareth. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? Where is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? Are not, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. Let's pray. Father, we, we ask you, we beg you, Lord, that you, you would be here present with us while we, while we look at your word. Your word is holy. Your word is a mystery without the revelation of your Holy Spirit. Lord, be with us today. Let us glorify your name. Amen. In this part of Mark's gospel, he's in the region of Galilee, the northern part of Israel. You have the northern part then you have the southern part of Judea, where the great temple of Herod is located. And then between that and the middle, you have Samaria. I think most people are familiar with the, uh, the geography of the area. Jesus was in this area in the north, in Galilee, for about 18 months. Now here, Jesus has returned to his hometown where the people would have been familiar with him as he grew up. And while he worked as his occupation as a local carpenter, they would have been well acquainted with his family during the time leading up to his 30th year when he began his ministry. Some of you may have grown up in small towns yourselves. You're familiar with the concept of knowing everyone's business. It wasn't how I grew up, but from what I understand, the small town experience can be unpleasant in some regards because confidentiality is almost non-existent. Gossip can travel at internet speeds. I find it interesting how frequently people speculate about what Jesus may have been up to during these silent years when the Bible doesn't document his activities. There's very little information about Jesus as he grew up. We get a little insight when he was 12 years old and his family returned to Jerusalem during the Feast of the Passover. And we see that Jesus was wise beyond his years. But the people in Nazareth wouldn't have known about that. So there are plenty of writers who are willing to fill that vacuum of information about those silent years with wild and ridiculous conjectures. 
and in the process they make a few dollars writing books. But the Holy Spirit was silent on those years, so we should be silent. But I'll make an exception. Because here in chapter 6, we learn something about the silent years, but only by inference. By the recorded conversations of the locals in the synagogue that day. First, notice how in verse 2, it says, Many who heard him were astonished. Where did this man get these things? They wonder aloud, how did he get this wisdom? It appears to be a recent characteristic. So we can rightly assume that prior to Jesus beginning his ministry, he didn't go around Nazareth looking like a boy, but sounding like King Solomon. So here he is all of a sudden sounding impressively wise to the hometown folks, and they are amazed by it. And they give us some more information about the silent years. When they inquire, how are such mighty works done by his hands? Isn't he the carpenter? So once again, they are astonished. And we know by implication that as Jesus was growing up, he wasn't going around and pulling rabbits out of hats, curing the sick, raising the dead, feeding or feeding the town from a single loaf of bread. These conclusions must be correct. Otherwise, these people, his neighbors who knew him all those silent years, wouldn't be scratching their heads and wondering what has come over this hometown boy all of a sudden. So all those books speculating on the silent years, having Jesus traveling to India or to China, learning ancient mysteries and secret arts, are pure nonsense. Jesus is astonishing because he is the Son of God. But this chapter tells us something else about the way the locals are reacting. They are taking offense at Jesus' newly revealed nature, to which Jesus responds in verse 4 with, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. I think Jesus is doing a couple of things here. One, he's making an observation. And two, within the observation is a warning. The observation is that people have difficulty accepting change, particularly when the change is associated with a person that they know well. I've heard many of you confirm this when you're relating a story about sharing the gospel with a family member and you stop and you say, well, you know how it is trying to share with a family member and you don't need to say anything more because we all get it. But let me give another hypothetical situation to drive the point further home. Picture a conversation between two family members where one is a recently converted, hopeless drug addict, but is now born again. 
and the other is an unsaved sibling. As the former addict is sharing the gospel, you can just picture the sibling saying, wait a minute, last week you were a drug addict living on the streets. And now you are trying to tell me I'm in danger of going to hell? And the sibling will completely disregard the information because of who it's coming from. Whereas that same born-again former drug addict could go to a church youth group and give a presentation and talk about being formerly addicted to drugs but now born again, and he would be widely received. His past would make his message more effective in this case. The second point, Jesus is also giving the Nazareth locals a warning. He's telling them to beware of falling into this psychological trap. Don't reject the overwhelming truth of his message because you're biased against the messenger. You have to look at the evidence behind a truth. But we have the conclusion as described in verses 5 and 6 which indicate how his hometown rejected him. It says, he could do no mighty work there except he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So the passage is showing that in spite of taking into account the trappings of unbelief due to familiarity with the messenger, Jesus is still amazed at their unbelief. He realizes that it will be difficult for them to accept his message, but yet he is still amazed at their unbelief. After all, he is out there raising the dead, opening the eyes of the blind, healing lepers, exercising demons, and this is not a simple case of a hometown boy makes good. This is something infinitely beyond that. Now the temptation when I come to a passage like this is to sit back and say to myself, those silly Israelites, how could anyone make that mistake? But I've studied the Bible long enough to realize I need to be careful. I'd better make sure there aren't any applications for me personally in this passage. Do I limit the work of Christ due to my lack of faith? Could Jesus be marveling at my unbelief? Have somehow I put Jesus in a box like his silly Nazareth neighbors did? To answer that question, we need to turn to what I would describe as some of the really big promises. Turn to Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. This is a familiar passage to most of us. Matthew chapter 17, verse 20. 
For truly I say to you, if you have faith like a grain of mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. And also in John chapter 14, verse 12, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these he will do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. One, one more verse I want to look at in James chapter 5, verse 17. James is speaking here. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the earth for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Let Jesus' words sink in for a moment. Moving mountains, nothing will be impossible for you. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now I think we could probably have a little debate on the meaning of those passages. We could examine the words in their Greek form. We could look closely at the context and perhaps even refer to some commentaries, maybe even some liberal commentaries. But instead of doing any of those things, let's just go ahead and agree to cut the enormity of those promises by one half. Or better yet, let's divide it by 10, cut them by 90%. Now let's hold those reduced promises up in front of us and compare them to our lives, our experiences. And I don't know about you, but I still don't feel like my Christian walk reflects what Jesus is promising here. Maybe we do have more in common with the Nazareth locals than we'd like to believe. And what was their problem? Why wasn't Jesus able to do any mighty works in his hometown? What did Jesus say? It was because of their unbelief. They had defined Jesus in a particular box. They were unwilling to accept that he was something much, much greater so he only performed a few minor miracles, no mighty works. Is it possible that we are comfortable with the minor stuff, but expect no mighty works from Jesus? Have we put Jesus into a box? Are we content with little from our Lord when he promises so much more? Let me ask you this. What are you willing to put on the table for Jesus to work with? Do we trust him with everything or do we have limits? Have we drawn lines around areas of our lives where Jesus is not allowed to work? Is your health off limits? 
your wealth, your comfortable home, your good reputation, your family, your children, your grandchildren. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 10. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And in Luke chapter 14, he says, those of you who do not give up everything, you cannot be my disciple. I'm not suggesting you go home and put everything up for sale and enter a monastery, but we do have to be willing to put everything on the table and say, Jesus, you know what is best for me and for your kingdom. Please work with any of it as you see fit. I really don't know how else to interpret Jesus' words when he says, if you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. Let's just take a moment to reflect on Joseph from the book of Genesis. God was going to create a pathway for Joseph, who was basically a Jewish nobody, to become second in command in Egypt, greatest nation on the earth. In other words, to borrow from today's passage, Jesus was going to do a mighty work in Joseph's life. Let's consider what Joseph put on the table for God to work with. He lost his family. He lost any wealth he may have accumulated. He nearly lost his life when his brothers contemplated murdering him and they threw him into a pit without water. He had a complete loss of personal freedom when he was sold into slavery. He lost his good reputation when he was wrongly convicted of a sex crime. And he lost all personal comforts while he was doing a long stretch in an Egyptian prison. And because Joseph trusted God and kept nothing from him, God was able to do a mighty work. Now let's jump back into Mark, but in chapter 4, verse 13, where Jesus is explaining the meaning behind the parable of the sower. Mark chapter 4, verse 13. I want us to assess which group of people we most likely fit into? One, two, three, or four. And then Jesus said to them, Don't you understand this parable? How then will you understand any parable? The farmer sows the word. Some people are like seed sown along the path, where the word is sown. As soon as they hear it, Satan comes and takes away the word that was sown in them. Others, like seed sown on rocky places, hear the word at once and receive it with joy. But since they have no root, they last only a short time. When trouble or persecution comes, because of the word, they quickly fall away. 
Now, I think I can safely assume since most of us in here have been Christians for decades, we probably do not fall into groups one and two. But let's look at three and four. Still others, like seeds sown among thorns, hear the word, but the worries of this life, the deceitfulness of wealth, and the desires for other things come in and choke the word, making it unfruitful. Others, group four, like the seed sown on good good soil, hear the word, accept it, and produce a crop, some 30, some 60, some 100 times what was sown. Are we in group three? Are we in group four? Are we willing to place everything in our lives on the table for Jesus to work with, or do we want to keep it under our imaginary control, worrying about it, choking the word, and making it unfruitful. I think the common Christian assessment is of this parable that if a person is saved, they automatically fit into group four. But it's by fruit production that a person fits into group four, not by a one-time act of coming forward. Sometimes I think we're like a juggler. We have a half a dozen tennis balls circling up and down in front of us as we carefully control them. Each ball represents a facet of our lives. Every once in a while, a ball falls to the ground and rolls just out of our reach. Our stress levels increase because we're unable to get the ball back under our control. So reluctantly, we pull Jesus into the juggling act as an assistant. We say or pray, hey Jesus, would you mind picking up that ball and gently tossing it back under my juggling control? Wow, what a mighty work. What a mighty work we just asked Jesus to perform. Maybe a better question would be, Jesus, should I be even be pretending to have control over this situation? Jesus, can you perform a mighty work in this area? A final passage I want to turn to is in Mark chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. And here Jesus is quoting from Isaiah chapter 29. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human traditions. In 35 years of being a Christian, I've never even considered these verses to be applicable to anyone but the Pharisees within the New Testament context. But in preparing for this sermon, I have to wonder if the applicability isn't for a wider, more contemporary audience. Consider these verses again. Elijah was a man just like us. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Nothing will be impossible for you. If you don't give up everything you have, you cannot be my disciple. 
Are we just following the teachings of human rules? Are we paying attention to his words? Two countries currently with the highest rates of conversion to Christianity are China and Iran. The common thread running between these countries is that conversion can lead to imprisonment or a death sentence. We all know that. These are people who have put everything on the table when they become disciples. And the result? The current governments are unable to stop the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is almost surprising that these totalitarian governments haven't figured out that the most effective method to slow the spread of Christianity is to endorse it, not persecute it. Like our country, or Western Europe, where Christianity is on the decline. You know, if we were able to jump back in time and attend that Nazareth synagogue meeting documented in chapter 6 of Mark, if we looked around the synagogue, we would see people just like us, although obviously dressed differently. We would probably be sympathetic to their prejudices to the hometown boy. We can understand it. We can, we can see why they're feeling the way they are. But with the additional insight from having read our Bibles and knowing the big picture, we would likely be tempted to grab them by their robes and say, snap out of it, man. Look what Jesus is doing. Look what he's saying. Can he be anything other than the Messiah? Don't mess up this small very small opportunity, this small window to see God performing a mighty work in this place, in your lives. Silly Israelites. But what about us here today? Is it possible that Jesus is in our presence wanting to grab us by our collars and say, what does my word say. Why don't you believe it? Why don't you put your trust in me in all areas of your lives? Snap out of it, man. Don't mess up this very small window of opportunity to see a mighty work performed in Faith Bible Fellowship Church. Let's pray. Father, we do not want to follow the teachings of merely human rules. We do not want to let go of the commands of God only to hold on to human traditions. Open our eyes to the areas of your word where we are only honoring you with our lips, but our hearts are far from you. Help us to identify traps we have fallen into, boxes we have placed you in, let us see your mighty works and glorify your name. Amen.